pretty sure there's a reason why preachers aren't meant to sing before they preach. Excuse me for my voice, but I think I just sort of lost it while we were singing. Thank you, Benji, for pointing us uh, to our Redeemer. Uh, that is the, um, the subject and theme of our worship, uh, ought to be daily. And that's also the theme um, of, um, of what we're going to be looking at this morning, which is um, the pursuit of watchfulness in the series that I'm doing on what Christians pursue. We're considering this theme of watchfulness uh, the second time because the last time we weren't able to complete it. And we're doing this theme uh, because as Christians, uh, we're supposed to be watchful. Now that may seem like a bit obvious. It's like a bit like saying a, a teacher ought to be literate. But Scripture cautions us time and time again of the need to be watchful and sober and vigilant, to watch how we live, to watch the company we keep, to watch out for false teachers, to watch our thoughts. And so to be watchful is is the hallmark of a Christian. However, the greatest reason for Christians to be watchful is what we have been singing about our Redeemer, who is to return. And therefore we are watchful because we are waiting and watching for his return. And therefore how ought we to live? How ought we to spend this time that we have between now and when he comes again or when he calls us to glory? The last time uh, we began our study on this subject of watchfulness by considering a portion of scripture from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 1 to 11. So if you have your Bibles there, please turn to the book, to Paul's letter, to first letter to the Thessalonian church, chapter 5. Or um, you could just follow along on the screen, which is uh, uh, in the N New American Standard Bible. I invite you to quiet your heart and mind at this time and allow the Spirit of God to minister to you through the reading of his inerrant and infallible word. Be watchful of what he is saying. Desire for him to speak to you through his word. Seek his understanding on the subject. Submit to his authority and above all, wait for the time. Be watchful for the time when he will return to be with us. This is what the word of God says. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 1 to 11. Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Verse 4. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night, nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep, do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, 
so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as also you are doing. May God bless his word to us and may the purpose for which he has intended it not be void. Shall we just pray and commit our time to the Lord? Gracious God and loving Father, your word is truth. You are truth. You desire for us to worship you in spirit and in truth. And Father, therefore, if we are to worship and be watchful and prayerful and careful, Father, we desire for your truth to really make its home in our hearts and minds, motivating us to live according to it, motivating us to seek it out more and more, motivating us to know you more and more. And Lord, therefore, to be watchful and waiting for for the coming of your Son, which will be a time of great joy. But in the meanwhile, Lord, as we fight, as we struggle, we just pray for your word to comfort and encourage and strengthen us. This we ask in the name of your Son. Amen. The return of Jesus Christ is a certain event that divides the world into two stark groups. There are those who watch and wait for him to return. There are those who choose not to do so. One group is characterized by watchfulness and vigilance. The other group is marked by idleness and indifference. We could say one group almost doesn't care if he returns or not because they believe he won't. What does the pursuit of watchfulness look like? We identified four aspects from the text last uh, last time. We could say that these are four characteristics of a watchful Christian. Watchfulness, number one, is about conformity, and we see this in verses 1 to 3. Specifically, are we conforming ourselves to the Word of God, or are we conforming ourselves to the dictates of the culture around us? Number two, watchfulness is about consistency. Specifically, is our conduct consistent with our identity as believers? And we see this in verses 4 to 7. Number three, watchfulness is about being combat ready. Specifically, are we wearing the armor of God? Are we aware that we are in a battle? That's in verse 8. And lastly, watchfulness is about confidence. Specifically, are you confident about the return of Christ? Are you confident about your state when he returns? And we see this in verses 9 and 10. So the last time we looked only at the first point because that's all we had time for, which was watchfulness is about conformity. Specifically, are we conforming ourselves to the Word of God, to the commands of God in Scripture? And just to recap on our study, we saw that the context of the passage, like we've been saying, is about the day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ. It's a day of great doom and destruction, as spoken about in Scripture, a time of great trial and tribulation, a time that the world has never seen. And so it's, it's, it's a day that is guaranteed to happen, and despite the certainty of the event, it takes a lot of people by surprise, because 
um, they don't think it's going to happen. Despite the word of God saying for thousands of years that it is going to happen. And rather they want to listen to false teachers and preachers who tell them that everything is good and um, you know, peace and safety is ahead and there's nothing to worry about really. And so when the destruction comes, they are taken by surprise. I was not expecting this. How did this happen? We ended last time's study having understood that this destruction was not universal but was set aside for the unbelieving ones, the negligent ones, the careless ones, the indifferent ones. They are those whose lives are not conformed to the, to the word of God. They live in flagrant disobedience. And so the inten- incentive for us is to be conformed because that is how we escape destruction. When we align our behavior, our attitude, our goals, our ambitions, our dreams, our thoughts, everything to the word of God, we are assured of escaping his wrath. And this is made even more clear in the next section of our text, verses 4 to 7. And So let's read it again. But you, brethren, are not in darkness. All this is going to happen to people who are in darkness, but you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. Why? For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Let us be watchful. Let us be vigilant. Let us be careful. Why? Verse 7, for those who do sleep... Do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Uh, Just please note the term day is used in two separate ways in this passage. When Paul is talking about the day in the first instance, but you brethren are not in darkness that the day would overtake you. He's referring to a specific day, the day. There's a definite article over there. And so what's the day? It's the day of the Lord. And so if you read uh, verse 2 and then immediately verse 4, you, it would read something like this. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night, but you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would, take, would overtake you. So the first instance of day is the day, the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the return of Christ. The second instance that the term day is used, and it's not the day, it's just day. No definite article. And Paul uses this to describe the identity of a person. And how does he do that? He's saying that some people are day people, while some people are night people. Now by this he's not talking about the waking and sleeping habits of people. My wife and I are not day people. We are night people. We, we, can, we can stay up till the crack of dawn. Just don't ask us to get up at that time. But again, like I said, Paul is not referring to the sleeping habits of people over here. He's referring to their spiritual identity. Throughout the scriptures, we see the distinction being made between people of the night and people of the day, people of light and people of darkness. For example, Colossians 1.13, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Ephesians 5.8 and 11 for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. 
John 3, 8, 19. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness instead. Acts 26, 18, Jesus is commissioning Paul now to go to the Gentiles and he says that he is sending them to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. So it's not just about being in the dark like you don't know something. You are actually under the dominion of Satan. Darkness is associated with Satan. It's not just, I'm, uh, I'm a bit ignorant of this, I'm in the dark about this matter. No, no, no. You're actually under subjugation. Romans 13, 12 to 14, the night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. 2 Corinthians 6, 14, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? And Jesus says in John 8.12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness. And so we, we see that light and dark are not just are, are metaphors, but very, very stark and strong metaphors for the identity of a person. Every person on this planet is either in darkness or in light. There is no gray. If we want to understand what Paul intends for us to understand about day and night people, we need to understand just how radically opposite these are. You know, it's one thing to be different. But it's completely another thing to be opposite. And I hope we can grasp the, the extremity of this. Light and dark are not just different they are polar opposite. They are chalk and cheese, oil and water. They don't mix. There is nothing common. There is nothing common. What fellowship has light with darkness? And of course, we are not speaking on a, on a, spiritual, uh, on a physical sense. Oh, I have a lot in common with Steve. We wear glasses. But we are not talking about physical similarities. We are talking about spiritual identities and therefore it is vital for, under us, for us to understand who we are. Forget about other people. Who am I? How does God see me? Does He see me as being in the light or does He see me as being in darkness? That's what matters. Do you understand how distinct you are as a Christian? And I'm not saying this so that you would feel superior to the person next to you. I'm saying that because that should humble you. How distinct and unique and peculiar you are as a believer should humble you. Because the identity you have is not something that you procured for yourself. It is an identity that God has given you despite you not being worth it. As a Christian, God has caused you to be born again. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. You have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. You are an inheritor, a co-inheritor with Christ. 
Christ is your brother. You have been adopted by God into his family. There is nothing common between you and darkness. There is no fellowship. And this is why the pursuit of watchfulness is about consistency. Consistent with what? Consistent with your identity. Being watchful is about conduct that is consistent with identity. First Paul makes a statement about the identity of his readers. But you brethren, hang on guys, you are not in darkness. Now just so you know, that word not there is a very strong negative. Definitely not, absolutely not, positively not, and if you don't mind my French, hell no. No way. No way. Brethren, there's no way that you are in darkness. That the day would overtake you like a thief. And why are you saying this, Paul? Verse 5, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. And basically saying, listen guys, this is who you are. You are sons of day. Your, your nature, your characteristic, your, your, your identity, the, the, the personality that you have, it has no uh, commonality with darkness. You are all sons of light and sons of day. And that's an interesting expression, sons of light and sons of day. Uh, commentator D.E. Hebert says in a quote, the Hebrews described a person as the son of anything that completely dominated and controlled them. Thus the expression sons of light means that spiritual light is the pervading element of their character. Unquote. What is the dominating, pervading, influencing source in your life? Is it light or is it darkness? What controls you? You are all sons of light and sons of day. And Paul goes to the extent of identifying himself with them. He says, we, we are not of night nor of darkness. Then about telling, after telling them about their identity, what comes next? We are not of the darkness. So then, because of our identity, because of this shared commonality that we have, because of the kind of people that we are, because of what God has made us into, because of this group that we now, to which now we belong, so, then, let us not sleep as others do. Now, what does that mean? And the word here for sleep is like an intensified slumber. It's like you're, you're, you're sleeping, but you're not just sleeping, it's a heavy sleep. You are dull. You are unconscious. You are not with it. And it's a picture of those who are spiritually asleep. Careless and unconcerned about the danger they are in, should they die. It's not an innocent siesta, it's not 40 winks. It's a dangerous dullness. William Vine, I'd like to quote him, he says, As sleep is natural in the night, so indifference to God characterizes man in his unregenerate state. But for regenerate man to be spiritually asleep is to seem to be of the night, not of the day. Of the world, not of Christ. Unquote. If you've 
if you've ever been on a road trip, I'm sure you'd have seen the signs, drowsy drivers die. They're not, they're not being harsh. They are, this micro-sleeps can kill. Right? You, you doze your eye just for a microsecond and that's it. You don't get up. Rest, stop, rest, revive, survive. It's logical. I mean, we know this stuff. It's not, I'm not giving you anything new. Sleep kills even in a physical sense. Why would we think that sleep would have any less of a traumatic, devastating effect in a spiritual sense? If it's not alright to just cruise on the highway, why would we think that it's okay to cruise to eternity? Bottom line, don't be a Christian who slumbers. A.W. Pink has a lovely quote, and he, he calls these people sleepy saints. And this is what he says about them. It's a bit of a long quote, but stay with me. Sleepy saints, what an anomaly, drowsing on the verge of eternity. Let that sink in for a second. Drowsing on the verge of eternity. Unless the Christian be very much on his guard, drowsiness will steal over him and he will fall asleep. Corruptions still indwell in him and sin has a stupefying effect. Satan seeks to devour him and unless resisted steadfastly, will hypnotize him. Thus the menace of this spiritual sleeping sickness is very real. Slumbering saints... What an incongruity. Taking their ease while threatened by danger, lazing instead of fighting the good fight of faith, trifling away opportunities to glorify their Savior instead of redeeming the time, rusting instead of wearing out in His service. We speak with wonderment and horror of Nero fiddling while Rome was burning, but far more startling and reprehensible is a careless Christian who has departed from God, bewitched by a world which is doomed to eternal destruction. Such a travesty and tragedy is far from being exceptional. Both observation and the teaching of Scripture prove it to be a common occurrence. Unquote. We think that Nero was fiddling around while Rome was burning. How much more reprehensible is the idea of a Christian who is careless in the face of coming destruction? Don't be a sleepy saint because verse 7, those who sleep do their sleeping at night and those who get drunk get drunk at night. Spiritual slumber is not in keeping with the characteristic of one who professes to follow Jesus Christ. Jesus is not your redeemer so that you can slumber your way to eternity. That's not why he saved you. Paul is saying, don't live like night people. Live like people of the day. Christians are those who are watchful and are called to keep their con conduct consistent with their identity. Their God-given identity. So that it is consistent as, as new creatures, as people who have been born again, as people who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, as people who, are, who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. 
Live out your God-given identity. Let your behavior be a manifestation of who you are. Let the world around look at you and say, that's a person who's saved. There's something different between that person. I mean, they look the same, but there's something different. I don't know what it is. They may hate you for it. But don't be like those who belong to darkness. Be like those who belong to the day. And this brings us to verse 8 and the third aspect of watchfulness. Watchfulness is about being combat ready. But since we are of the day, having established our identity, having now uh, made no bones about who you are, no way that you are in darkness, there's no way that you are people of the night, having established this, but since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. To be watchful is to be conformed to God's word, consistent with the identity that he has given us, and thirdly, to be combat ready with his armor. And why, why the sudden use of military terminology? Because throughout, if you, if, you, if you know anything about Paul, he constantly makes the analogy between a Christian and a soldier. When we are born again, we are not born again merely as citizens of heaven. We are born again as warriors. That is our job. That is, we are enlisted. To be born again is to be enlisted for battle. I mean, it's not so, oh, I didn't sign up for this, sorry. That's, that, that's the purpose. You are born again to fight. Not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. You are fighting a heavenly war. Know that. Be aware of that. It's a reality. This is not Lord of the Rings. It's true. It, it, I mean, if you, are, if you are unaware of this, it's like you driving along at 100 k's on the highway and there's this truck coming, this road train coming at you and you, you don't even know it's there. What's more, your identity as a day person is not simply as a soldier, but you are a soldier who is never off duty. Never. There's never a time when you can sit down. God allows us times of prosperity and, and peace and comfort, yes. But those are sometimes the most dangerous times because we become lax and, lax and careless. So there's never a time when you take off your armor because there's never a time when the battle ceases. You are born again into the kingdom of light, but until that kingdom comes, you are at war with the kingdom of darkness. Be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. What does that mean? So let's just look at these terms really quickly. To be sober is not uh, to an exhortation to have a gloomy, mournful demeanor. It's not to have a really long face and walk around the place all the time. In Ephesians 5.8, Paul says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but what's the opposite of drunkenness? Be filled with the Spirit. And given that sobriety is given as an opposite of drunkenness, 
the whole picture is of influence. What's controlling you? Be filled with the Spirit. The idea is of, a, of wind filling the sails of a ship so that you know, the, the ship has direction and, and is guided on its way by the wind. And so in the same way, we are to be filled by the Spirit who is our influencing factor and he, he guides us, gives us direction. That's what it means to be sober. Don't allow worldly influences to dull your senses the way an intoxicant would. How many soldiers do you know who go out on the battlefield drunk? When was the last time you heard of a soldier who went into the battlefield drunk? I mean, if, if, if there ever was a, a, someone who did that, I can give you three, three reasons why he might do that. One, he overestimates his own power and, and the strength of his own armor. Two, he, ident- he underestimates the strength of the enemy and the strength of the w- enemy's weapons. Or number, f- number three, he doesn't know that there's a war going on. And there are many Christians, I believe, who are on the battlefield in a state of stupor. It's only a time, a matter of time, before they become a casualty of war. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the armor of salvation. Day people, armor up. Day people, armor up. How do we do that? One commentator puts it really well. You need to get your head right. That's the breastplate of faith and love. And you need to keep your head right with the helmet of the hope of salvation. Keep your heart right. Keep your head right. How do you keep your heart right? Trust in Jesus. Love His people. That's it. That's it. Put your faith in Christ. Love His people. There's nothing else to it. Trust in Jesus. Love His people. Constable says, faith in God protects inwardly and love for the people protects outwardly. These two graces cannot be separated. If one believes in God, he will also love other people. Hand in hand. Sure, how do you keep your head right? What's that about? It's about protecting your mind. What does your mind need protection from? Doubt and discouragement. How do you protect your mind? With a helmet of hope of salvation. The hope of salvation is your protection against doubt and discouragement. You've got faith, and yes, I can understand you've got faith, and you've got love, and you've got all these things, and you've got the the breastplate and and all that going for you, but, you know, what's going to happen if you're a new believer and, and tragedy strikes? Your faith is rocked. To the, to the core of its foundation because of, I don't know, a, a personal tragedy perhaps or a, a time of trial? What are you going to do then? What happens to your faith? What happens to your love? What if you're, you've been a believer all your life and towards the end of your life you're like Job and in a second everything comes crashing down? What happens to your faith then? How many people do we know who've had, whose faith has crumbled in the face of personal trial? Hope 
safeguards faith. And when faith comes under assault by doubt and discouragement, hope in salvation is the armor that we rely on. And this is not the hope of wishful thinking. This is not, I hope so, oh, fingers crossed. No, no, no. It's a no-so. 1 John 5.13 These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Why did you write these things, John? So that you may know. So that you may know that you have eternal life. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. John wants you to know. You can know. Do you know? The hope of salvation is the same as, the, uh, as saying the, the certainty of salvation, really. Put on the helmet of the certainty of salvation. Paul, writing to Titus, calls it the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ago. So the helmet of hope is the helmet of the certainty of salvation and it serves to protect our minds against the onslaught of uncertainty and despondency. Have you been in a time of your life where there's no hope? That it's just dark? And you're in a hole? The writer to the Hebrews puts it like this, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Be so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. We who have taken refuge have strong encouragement to take hope to take hold of the hope set before us. And what's so special about this hope? This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. When, when the storms of doubt and discouragement toss you about, hope is the rock, the bedrock. The certainty of salvation is the bedrock that makes your faith immovable. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. It's alive. It's hope. It anchors. It strengthens. It protects if you, are a, if you are a day person, if you have been born again from the, from the kingdom of darkness and to the kingdom of light, you have this hope. No matter what you are going through at the moment, no matter what trial, no matter what tribulation, no matter what, whatever is, is pummeling you against the rocks, you have this hope. He has caused us again to be born again to a living hope, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. And what? It's reserved in heaven for you. It's not going anywhere. Isn't that beautiful? We have this hope, an anchor for the soul, 
that is imperishable and undefiled and is being reserved for us. It's got our name on it. Paul speaks about this assurance in Colossians 1, 3-5. And if you have your Bible, just turn there, please. I, I, I want you to, 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 to read and something that I found I thought was quite remarkable because I hadn't noticed that before. Colossians 1, 3-5. It, it, it may seem really simple to you, but it just blew my mind, so I thought I'd share that. Colossians 1, 3-5. So stay with me. Colossians 1, 3-5. Here we go. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. There you go, love for the saints, faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. So first of all, you've got love, faith, hope there again. And that phrase, laid up for you, is a, is a composite word that means it's set aside for a temporary time, but it's laid up for you. It's there. You are just separate from it for a time being. But it's there. Know that. Be certain of it. And it is for you. It is for you. No one can take that away from you. If there is any inheritance, possession, worth having that has your name on it, this is it. The hope of which we speak is in heaven. It is intended for you. But here's the remarkable thing. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. The hope laid up for you in heaven, which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. The undying, undiminishing, reserved nature of the hope that you have in Christ Jesus is good news. It's in the gospel, it's the truth. You heard about this Thessalonian guys, you, 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 you heard about this hope that you have and because of that you express faith in Jesus Christ and because of that you love his saints and, and all of that together is the gospel. Without the hope of eternal security there is no gospel. Without, without knowing that my salvation is secure forever, I, it's not good news if it's unsecure, is it? Hey, guess what? Yeah, I'm giving you eternal life, but uh, <laughs> it's not forever. That's why Paul instructs them and us to wear as a helmet the hope of salvation because it is able to protect your mind against doubt and discouragement and it will come. If it hasn't come, don't worry, it will. It will. Be prepared. Be prepared to, to have the ship of your life battered against the rocks of despair and doubt and uncertainty. Be it's going to happen. But the hope of salvation is what anchors on. It not only sustains us, but it also assures us. And that's why it's the armor that brings us 
confidence. And so we come to our last aspect of watchfulness. It is about confidence. Put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation. Why should we do that? Verse 9, because God has not destined us for wrath, but for salvation. I mean, are you rejoicing because of that? Did you know that you were destined for wrath? Did you know that? Did you know that you were in darkness? Did you know that you were unsavable? That there was nothing that you could do to save yourself? Because now you, that, that's not the case anymore. God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you, did you get the word destined there? God has not destined us for wrath, but He has destined us for salvation. That is music to my ears. But for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as also you're doing. Now, uh, this seems a bit strange. Just a few words, uh, verses before, he was talking about don't slumber, don't sleep. But now he's saying whether you're awake or you're asleep, it doesn't matter what's going on here. So if, if you remember uh, the previous chapter, there were some uh, Thessalonian believers, I mean, they were rapture ready, they were waiting for Jesus to return any moment. But in the meanwhile, a lot of them were, were dying. And so they were wondering, what's going to happen now? You know, Jesus hasn't come, these people are dead, uh, they, they love the Lord, what's, what's going to happen, what's their fate? And then in the previous chapter, Paul assures them, he says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, those who died, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Death is a hopeless situation for those outside of Christ. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, so that you would grieve as those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Christ is coming again. And guess what? He's going to bring with him all those people who've died. Don't worry about it. So the phrase, whether we are awake or asleep, is referring to the Thessalonian believers who'd already died. So Paul is saying, your identity as a child of light ensures your destiny in Christ. If he has called you in the past, he will call you in the future. If he has changed your life in the past, he is going to change your future. Don't worry about it. It's locked in. It's sealed. That's a guarantee. And that's the reason we have confidence. It is unshakable because you are not responsible for it. God is responsible for it. I could lose, if, if I was, you know, so here's your salvation. Oh, 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 I could lose it in a second if it was up to me. And that's the reason we have confidence. God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not all, is it? What else is there? God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining, but for obtaining salvation through Jesus Christ who died for us. Christ died so you could have confidence in your future, in your eternity. The death 
of Christ or the love of my Redeemer. Never failing, come what may. He has purchased my forgiveness and has washed my sins away. What, just for a time being? Just for now? No. No, forever. The reason we have confidence is not simply because we know that God has destined us for salvation. We know that God has destined us because He caused His Son to die on our behalf. That's serious. That is serious business. God means for you to know how serious He is about your identity because He gave His Son to die. It's serious. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Eliza Hewitt puts it beautifully in the hymn that is familiar to us. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died. But that's not enough. But that he died for me. Beautiful too are the words of Charles Wesley. Amazing love. How can it be? That thou, my God, wouldst die for me. Knowing that Christ died for me expressly and specifically and particularly is the reason why I am confident of that day when he returns. There's no other reason. He died so that I would not be destined for wrath. If Christ has secured my safety with his blood, how can I then despise his sacrifice by indulging in the things that he died to save me from? How can I play around with the things that he died and shed his blood to save me from? How can I treat as a cheap thing the blood of Christ? That is why whenever we come for communion, we say, hang on guys, just take a moment. This is the blood and the body of Christ that was given on your behalf. Think about this. Think about this. Is your life right? If it's not, then, then don't take part in it. Get right with God. Every time you are tempted, remember that Jesus died so that you would be free from the power of that temptation. So remember that. I'm tempted to do something wrong and then I see the cross. Am I going to give in to that? Am I going to give in to something that Jesus died for? Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around you like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Be watchful. Be vigilant. Confidence in the future means vigilance in the here and now. 
Some people will say, oh, you're saved. Grace has saved you. You don't need to worry about it. No, 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 no. No, no, no. God did not save you to live as you please. God saved you so that you would live as He pleases. God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are asleep or awake, we will. We will live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as also you are doing. Can we encourage one another that Christ has died for us? Can, can, we, can we get a grip that the God who created us died for us? Does the death of Christ on your behalf encourage you to live for Him? Does it motivate you to be vigilant and watchful over your life so that you would be cautious and careful? Does it give you the confidence that eternity is waiting, is secure, is a done deal? So let's close with this summary and let's just go over what it means to be a watchful Christian. And yes, I have those words up on the screen, but I was thinking about it later on, and I can boil it down to two words, I think. Expectation and preparedness. Why? Because we are waiting for Him to come. We expect Him to come, and we prepare ourselves accordingly. We are waiting for His return. And if we are waiting for someone to come, we're not just twiddling our thumbs. We're cleaning up the house. We're getting our affairs in order. Why? So that we will not be ashamed when He returns. What does it mean to be watchful? What does it, vigilance looks like? It, it looks like conforming ourselves to the Word of God. We live as He commands. We don't do it um, um, grudgingly. We, we do it, it is a joy. Amazing love, how can it be that thou my king would die for me? How can I withhold anything? If you've given me your life, how can I say, oh, I don't know. It doesn't make sense. Yes, Lord. It means our conduct is consistent with the new identity He has given us. We live different. We live with a different motivation. We live with a different ambition. We live with a different confidence. We live with a different outlook in life. Our decision making is different. Because we do all that we do for the glory of God. It means we are ready for combat at any time. Any time, temptation can strike at any time, and so we are ready. Because we are wearing the breastplate of faith and love, and our head is protected by the helmet of salvation, the hope of salvation. And lastly, it means we are confident because we know that Jesus died for us. I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that He is able. 
Put simply, the pursuit of watchfulness is just about being ready for when Jesus comes. He is coming. And again, you know, are we waiting? Are we waiting for that day when we will see Him? Are we waiting for that day? I know, I know Brett's waiting for that day when Norn steps off the plane. I know that. He doesn't have to tell me that. Are we waiting? Does it fill our heart with joy? Just to think of that day. And then are we, are we living in the here and now accordingly? We are watchful because our King is coming. Our Redeemer is coming. Our Savior is coming. Our brother is coming. And so we live every second for his return. We are watchful all the time because we know that Jesus can come anytime. And so we live in expectation and we live prepared. Shall we pray? Our gracious God and loving Father, what a, what a joy to know, Lord, that you have transferred us from darkness to light. And not just that, but you have reserved our inheritance for us. It is reserved with our name on it and it has been purchased with a price that is imperishable. It has been purchased not with things that are perishable, but with the most precious commodity, there is the blood of Christ. Father, we thank you that you have seen fit to change us, to enlist us into this battle. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to live more conformed to your word, consistent with the identity you have given us, Lord, armored with faith and hope and love and just being confident because you have died for us. And so Lord, fill us with joy as we anticipate and eagerly await the coming of your Son. And we pray that he would speed his return. We pray that he would come and establish his kingdom. We pray that his rule would be evident here on earth for all to see. We pray for that day when every knee will bow. Lord, and when every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and this would be to the glory of the Father, and so we will be with Him, and when we see Him face to face, we will be like Him, and so we pray that You would prepare us for that day to be watchful and waiting with joy, and we ask all this in the most holy and precious name of our coming, returning Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.